0: You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Well, welcome back to this third and final session of the summit. Um, We've dealt with cooperation and collaboration. We've also looked at the green, you know, the big green bang in terms of the energy revolution Um, that such that it is, and now we conclude with the issue of what price for a greener future. Um, As I began in the morning, we know this is a question of supply and demand, and cost is pivotal to it, uh, and pricing, therefore, as a result. And we will debate that particular issue in this final session. What I'd like to do, as we've done with all our sessions, is bring the voice of the citizen into the discussion. The voice doesn't necessarily relate to this particular issue, but it's important to reflect on how members of the public across Europe are reflecting on this issue. So the first quote, if I can have that up, is from Miguel. Cities have considerable potential to implement innovative solutions to climate change by improving energy efficiency. Next one. So from the UK. China and India have both chosen fossil fuels to develop their nations. Even if the EU reached 0% emissions, 20 years from now there there will still be more CO2 than today, making our efforts worthless. And finally, Ivan from the Netherlands, the energy required will always outstrip, outstrip supply as cities grow. Building millions of windmills and covering the land with sonar pa- panels will only meet a fraction of this need. Who is going to order heavy coal users to stop and why would they listen in any case? So, just to give you a view from the outside in, in terms of the, the views of the members of the public uh, around this particular agenda. We know that pricing is a key issue and what we, we have is an interesting panel for you today of folk who have various inroads and kind of cuts into the debate um as a result and i'm going to start with Anne. um in terms of your obviously at ng ng is kind of remodeling itself and has done so and adapted uh, um quite significantly but from your perspective um the ets and the carbon pricing is it a sufficient lever
1: so, we, we are convinced that it's important to, to, to have a real signal, a real carbon uh, price signal. Uh, I will come back to the EU ETS, but first, uh, you know, um, emissions are only covered in the world, only 15% of the emissions are covered by your, by your system, by your mechanisms, and um, 75% of those emissions are priced less than $10 per ton. So there are no real change in behaviors for the time being. And what we see now is people, uh, companies, uh, uh, alliances of companies, associations, uh, and also scientists, economists. There were this uh, commission, uh, Stiglitz Stern, uh, on uh, carbon prices, um, and uh, a lot of actors and countries uh, countries uh, are working on developing systems. Uh, more than 40 uh, initiatives are underway. Uh, by the way, there will be an interesting development, which is uh, in China, the creation of the national markets and i mean if we want to be uh, uh, ambitious in uh, in europe we shouldn't focus only at what we do in europe but what the others do and uh, not to be uh, late on uh, on uh, on climate actions besides i think this is important uh, on top of having uh, uh, carbon pricing mechanisms it's important to reward consumers that uh, you know have a, Uh, this behavior to consume uh, with less carbon. Uh, There will be also two major steps, which will be uh, COP23 and the climate event uh, um, in in Paris, Uh uh, which will be uh, the second anniversary of COP21. And I think there should be decisive steps to move forward, So, for example, uh, we need to define new rules on uh, new market mechanisms to reward uh, reductions on uh, on emissions. So this is really uh, uh, important uh, uh, opportunities. Um, On EU ETS, I think um, it doesn't give the right signal uh, right now. Uh, And for it to give the right signal, uh, we are in favor of having uh, a corridor uh, with uh, a minimum level, minimum level uh, with a high level. Actually, you have different reports. My president, uh, uh, president of NG, with uh, uh, the NGO uh, WWF the head uh, which his name is Canfin and uh, the economist Grandjean published a report uh, last, uh, last year there was also the stiglitz Stern uh, mm-hmm. commission so you have different level of, uh, of prices given, um, which are different if you look at the switch to, uh, from an energy to another or if you look at social price of carbon you have different ways of looking at it So there is this minimum price and um, a a, a cap of a a, a maximum price to uh, give visibility to investors and uh, uh, to reassure, I would say, uh, investors. So uh, this is what we think uh, is important, to have also a a transparent price and I think there is really this opportunity, you know, there is this discussion with, uh, France and Germany on, uh, on that and on having, a, a, a minimum price. Um, if a country does it by, by itself, this is not enough because it will not have an impact, an environmental impact. So we need to have a coalitions. Uh, what would be the best is to have, of course, to have it in the EU ETS, but, perhaps this is not possible short-term given uh, the political, uh, you know, uh, uh, context. Mm. Um, but this is really important if we want to reach the objectives of the Paris Agreement to really have uh, this, uh, this, uh, this signal. So, for example, we are at G. We have an internal uh, price. Mm. We have, uh, you spoke about the transformation of uh, my company. So we... Uh, took uh, very uh, decisive, uh, critical uh, uh, decisions uh, which are difficult to take, like uh, exiting uh, coal. So we are currently, we exited 60% of our capacity. Uh, We are currently exiting uh, ENP, exploration, Exploration and Production Activities. So it's very heavy uh, decisions, uh, which are possible uh, through strategic decisions and through, you know, having this carbon price when we decide on our investment and but our you clearly, portfolio. Sorry
0: to in- interrupt you, but because you, uh, you, you know, there's much been said about your re- you know, internal revolution, the pricing system, and the fact that you're adapting quite significantly. But clearly, you've seen the economic case for doing so. It can't simply be just a case of. You know, the moral argument around climate change the fact is that you've seen very clearly there's a business case here that actually there's a return on investment, no?
1: This is not enough mm. uh, for sure uh, we, we are in a competitive world, that's why we, we need to have uh, clear uh, price signals everywhere in the, in the world and which has a meaning which have a meaning, meaning uh, having a sufficient level, which is not the case right now
0: Indeed. And obviously, as you refer to Staglitz and other, other reports, other authors, they've all talked about the fact that there's been a missed opportunity in the past few years of not doing something around pricing. And actually, what we need to do is take it, take it, you know, shake it by the throat and actually do something quite significant. But perhaps you can come back to that point in a moment. Hans, can I turn to you? I know you're not involved in the EU ETS discussions and directly involved per se, but given your portfolio, is. Is the kind of the, the pricing issue or the kind of some of the infrastructure that's being created around momentum having a significant effect on your portfolio? Uh,
2: thank you and good afternoon to all of you. Um, I'm here also for gender balance. As you can see, this is uh, unusual and, and very nice uh, position to be in. Uh, as you said, I'm representing the commission, uh, DG Energy, where I'm the advisor on renewables, mm. energy efficiency and research. Um, I think certainly the question you're asking is is indeed the very correct and relevant one. You've sort of labeled this session the the, the price for a green future. I think you could turn it around also and ask what would be the price for a grey or even a black future. And In our view, that would be much, much higher. And we are consistently arguing from the Commission side that the energy transition is necessary not only in order to deal with climate change, but also to create jobs and growth. The whole energy transition, in our view, is a fantastic opportunity uh, for the the EU uh, to get ready for the next century and in an increasingly competitive uh, world. Um, When we're talking specifically about carbon pricing, Uh, In the EU, we have, of course, the EU ETS and we have the uh, non-ETS system that deals with the sectors that are not covered by the ETS uh, system as such. And I think, as Anne just said, it's quite clear that this has not yet delivered. It has nonetheless some very specific advantages. It has the advantage of setting a price of carbon across the economy. And none of the other things that we're doing in the commission, be it detailed regulation on renewables, energy efficiency, and so on, can do that. And we need that as well because um, what we really need is a regulatory certainty for the industry, for all the people that have to invest. And, you know, the investment needs that have been calculated for the energy transition are absolutely astronomical. We are estimating that we will need something like 170 billion euros Mm -hmm. additional investment every year (coughs) between 2020 and 2030 in order to deliver this. Of course, the energy transition comes then with the advantages. We're saying 900,000 additional jobs from the energy transition, those are real value for the economy as a whole. We're saying that it can create something like 190 billion additional GDP and of course very importantly we can reduce our energy bill which is money straight out of the EU to the people who are uh, exporting fossil fuels in particular to the EU uh, of more than 290 billion a year as well. I mean that is again figures that puts this whole energy transformation in perspective. And carbon pricing, in that sense, has a real role to play. But when I looked at the carbon price a few days ago, it was around seven euros per tonne. I mean, that is clearly not delivering. If we're just, as an example, looking at something like CCS. CCS is uh, the kind of investment that require a carbon price which is way, way higher than what we see today. And we see the consequences in Europe. We're struggling on CCS compared to the rest of the world. And one of the last projects that we were hoping for on CCS, the one in Rotterdam, now seems to be in very uh, significant difficulties. So we need carbon pricing, and I think the ongoing negotiations about a strengthened EU ETS are taking us in the right direction, but we've always in Europe followed a dual strategy, a strategy where we say we need carbon pricing, we need to set the price on carbon, but at the same time, we need some regulatory stability, we need regulatory certainty for all those that have to go out and invest in this energy transition. So, when I was involved in the renewable energy directive uh, 10 years ago or more, in fact, we looked at all this in a very integrated way. We developed a joint impact assessment for the EU ETS, and the Renewable Energy Directive. It was one of the, um, shall we say, most challenging, uh, some would say most painful exercises that we've been through uh, in the Commission. But we need to look at these things in an integrated way because we need both. We need carbon pricing and we need detailed uh, regulatory uh, intervention, legislation on renewables, energy efficiency, and so forth, and so forth. That's why the energy packets that we're negotiating uh, for the moment, I think you've been talking about that this morning, is so critically important, not just to get it, but to get it quickly in order to create the investor certainty that is needed uh, for all these investments to happen in the, in the next century.
0: What's your... I mean, we know. I mean, if we, th- we think about evidence-based policymaking... Um, on this occasion. Um, we know that the forecast on pricing is going to be much lower than in, than we expected um, in 2016. We're already seeing the fact that by, by, by 2020 we're going to see the pricing potentially be much lower than it should be. Also, as you say, the energy package is in place or is being developed, but we know also the dialogue that's taking place, which I'm not going to ask you to comment on at all in, in terms of what's happening within the Commission. But do you get a sense of urgency and pace within uh, in terms of knowing what the trajectory is we know the pricing is not what it should be we know it's going in the direction it shouldn't be going and we know the kind of as i mentioned in the mo- in the morning session the carnage of climate change is hitting europe and the world is there a sense that the the, the players inside have a real sense of this urgency and pace in terms of moving moving in, a, in the right direction I'm not asking you to speak for politicians. What does it feel like for you? Yeah, inside? No,
2: I think it is absolutely urgent because, you know, we need... We know from the scientists that we need our carbon emissions to peak at the latest in 2020, and we need to have them halved by 2050 if we are to stay within the two-degree uh, scenario. So there is a sense of real urgency uh, in all of this, um, and, and the sooner we can fix it, uh, the better. Um, Having said that, we also know that uh, these things take time.
0: Or rather you mean that's proxy for bedeviled by politics.
2: Well, uh, I think we are on the right track. I mean, we know the positions of the parliament, we know the positions of the council. There are still many issues that have to be finally settled. Sure. But there is, I think there is a solution coming up and I think we have embarked on the road in Europe and we've set an example for the rest of the world. and. Parts of the world have followed the European example in creating carbon pricing systems, um, similar to the European system, but also different in many ways. But I think they have, there has to be clear evidence of this actually delivering, and so far uh, there is still a way to go on that front in terms of the actual... Mm. And I agree, pricing.
0: I mean, about you know, how the EU has led, but I think the, the question is not about... Um, the practice and the, uh, the leadership. It's actually we need a quantum leap in effort, uh, really, if we're going to get to where we need to be. And I think our timelines and assumptions are perhaps being rewritten in, in front of us. But we'll come back to that debate from the audience as well. Can I turn, turn to you, Rachel? Um, you've done a lot of work on the ETS and carbon pricing. Um, given what I've just said, where do you think we are and where do we need to be
3: Thank you. Uh, For those who aren't familiar, Sandbag is a small uh, think tank. We're an EU think tank. We happen to be based in London at the moment. Um, Firstly, uh, I'd like to say I note on the programme it has a question that says, Can the EU ETS remain the main driver of decarbonisation in the EU economy? Um, I would like to echo what the gentleman from the Commission has said, which is actually I'm not sure that it really has been that main driver of decarbonisation. So I'm not sure that it's the right question. That's not to say that carbon pricing isn't a vital part of decarbonising the EU economy, and um, at Sandbag we absolutely think it is. So the question is what's the right model going forward? How do we build on what we've learnt from the experience with the EU ETS? Um, at the moment it's not working. Our modelling shows that there will still be a surplus in the EU ETS in 2030, the end of phase four despite a lot of excellent um, moves in the, commis- in the Commission and Parliament and the Council to try and tighten it up. Um, if there is still a surplus of perhaps one billion allowances in the system, that is not going to drive a, a strong enough carbon price to drive decarbonisation. Um, and so we need something else to change. Whether that be a change to the EU ETS again, um, i it would be wonderful if something new could come into the trialogue discussions, but it looks likely that there'll be only one more trialogue discussion. Um, and so the Earth would really have to move um, to, to get something strong enough into that. Um, or if we could find a way to trigger a new review as soon as possible after this one, which looked at whether the UETS is consistent with the Paris Agreement. Um, One point on which I didn't completely agree with the um, gentleman from the Commission is uh, the proposal that we would need to halve emissions by 2050. I think that the scientific consensus is saying net zero by 2050 now. Mm. And in order to get the ETS on a path uh, to achieving that, we really need to tighten it up enormously. Uh, We also have an interesting perspective being based in the UK because the one example of carbon pricing in the world that I would say has really worked effectively is the UK carbon floor price. Um, And we've seen coal coming off the system um, faster than anyone ever expected in the UK as a direct result. A number of interventions, but the carbon floor price was a really important one of those. And um, one of the important things about that is that it was a very targeted measure and it only applies to the power sector. It hasn't tried to spread itself across industry as well. Um, There is a lot to be said for the EUTS in terms of trying to address both of the sectors at once. However, uh, free allocation continues to industry. It's going to continue right through phase four, as far as we can tell. Um, And if that's the case, it's not really setting regulatory certainty. It's basically saying, we're going to apparently apply this measure to you and then give you a get-out-of-jail-free card Hmm. for as long as you can imagine. Um, And that doesn't seem to me that it's applying one measure to both sectors fairly. So there needs to be a new thinking about... Um, what measures we need to relate to different sectors. And that might mean quite, I think it does mean, a lot of new interventions um, on the industry side, which won't be only about pricing. So firstly, can we find a way of setting a price for industry that is meaningful and fair and supports them? Um, We would love to see a more serious conversation about border carbon adjustments. I know that's a very controversial area, but I'm not sure that the conversation has been had in enough detail Um, to decide whether it's something that could work or not. And certainly with the global dynamic evolving as it is, uh, border carbon adjustments might be a little bit more relevant now than they might have been in the past. Um, What else was I going to say? I think that we are very pleased to see France and Germany and the Netherlands coming out with their proposals for national carbon pricing. So I think overall, my message is um, ETS... Let's keep it, if we can, let's strengthen it um, beyond belief as, as soon as possible if for it to be meaningful. OK,
0: if from your... Because, I mean, it's great that individual member states do their thing well, mm. but you know, actually, for this to work, you need a whole system approach. Because, yeah. actually, members doing it by themselves ain't enough. And what you've just described, in terms of the, kind of the UK example of floor pricing, absolutely, it has had this huge impact. So, therefore, Ergo, what are, you, what are you saying about what needs to happen Europe-wide? Or if you're looking ahead to the next stage of development around Paris, what would you say? Because, you know, the thinking around the ETS, you know, hasn't been done fully has it i mean from your perspective what would you put in place
3: we would put in place a regular ratchet to keep the cap in line with the paris agreement which responds to um changes in emissions levels so at the moment emissions have moved faster than expected which means that there is all the surplus in the system um, and the system is not designed to respond to that one response to that is well brilliant we've reduced our emissions faster than we expected so we've achieved our goal um and we don't say it quite like that um so one system we have proposed is is this ratchet mechanism which could um, be predictable, provide certainty, but also provide flexibility um, to take into account um, unforeseen changes. Um, But honestly, I think that that's not enough. And we've never seen, you've never seen a system-wide approach that works. And actually, we need to change things so quickly if we're going to decarbonise fast enough that it's got to be lots of bits and pieces um, if we are going to decarbonise fast enough. So that Let's do as much as we can with carbon pricing, but let's have an industrial strategy as well that looks at real measures um, on the ground that will help them to decarbonise and innovate.
0: And would you want greater regulation in this regard?
3: That's a really good question. Um, My uh, professional background is in the civil service, so of course I love regulation, but... um, on the other hand... However, step
0: do. aside. But I mean, yeah. uh, come on, you, you sit where you sit, and you've seen what's happening, right? Yeah. And you've you been a, you know, your, your, your think tank has been a critique of ETS and actually the pricing. And actually, one of your reports also said, you know, there's been a loss of time. And actually, if we don't do something urgently now, we're not going to get to where we want to be. So...
3: If it means regulation, then so be it. Uh, it would need to be done, you know... That, regulation is a very broad term... It depends what you mean, it depends who you're talking about, um, but I suppose the carbon floor price is a form of regulation, and um, that's working. So, if we can look at targeted interventions like that, um, applying a carbon price across the whole economy flat and, and not allowing for differences between sectors would be extraordinary, and I, don't, I wouldn't suggest that. So, that's not the kind of regulation we would advocate for, because okay. so and it's sort of a maybe
0: response all right okay i'm sure there'll be questions from the floor on, on that particular point. last but not least claude i want to turn to you There should if you could, let me get get you a mic edf has been a strong proponent of a stronger carbon price and you've had obviously um uh, the wind in your sails um from macron who's asked for a much higher price um if, if it were possible What's your take in terms of the current situation uh, regarding carbon pricing? And also think of the kind of potential consequences of if France does this, how do we get others to follow suit? Uh,
4: if, uh, if, I, if I look o- o- on your question of um, carbon pricing, I will say first that I am um, I'm confused with carbon pricing. Uh, you, you do tell me we ought to talk about money and how it it's make it happen. I'm a little confused be, with that because for me, I feel that carbon carbon pricing is at a different level and and I will suddenly be back to UETS you and your question about how are we pragmatic and that. But carbon pricing is first assembled.
0: You may just need to lower the mic a little it's, bit. Yeah. It's
4: a flagship. The fact that there is a mention of carbon pricing within the Paris Agreement is certainly a way to bring business in the arena, which is, which is key in keeping uh, the momentum on, on, on what is happening on, on, on CO2 emissions. Uh, if you, uh, I, I listened to what was said about having a model with uh, EU ETS, but there are a lot of carbon pricing. You have carbon pricing which can be direct, a, a, a carbon tax that happened in a lot of countries today. Uh, you have a carbon tax in a lot of European countries, that means that carbon is already a, a, a price for, for country. And at the same time, you can uh, indirect through through policies. So for me, carbon pricing is is necessary. A question of how have, are we having a systemic approach, and that can take on board a lot of the questions that was already mentioned today. Being the last to talk is, is a little challenging of, of, of what had been said during, the, during the, the, the morning. But the question of how are we uh, integrating that and is carbon pricing one of the good solutions to, uh, to have this systemic approach is certainly, for me, the key issue that we will have to fix in the future. Our through, uh, intelligent carbon pricing we can have a systemic approach on the global issue, not only on climate, but some social that was mentioned this morning, too, and other, like what's not mentioned today, like biodiversity and other topics. How are we having a more global integrating system that allows us to go to a more sustainable future? But uh, saying that, it's, it's not something that we have to, um, to fix by our own. There is also a question of transparency. Again, not only carbon pricing, but also climate disclosure, near more transparency. And I am really advocating not only for carbon price. I am advocating at two levels. The first level is having a clear signal for us as industrial for carbon. But the other is how are we having a clear framework on disclosures, on, on climate issue? I believe that the two are going together. I don't remember who this, m- this morning mentioned um, reporting and, 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 and data, but we need something like that. If you want to, to be able to, to develop a, a change in, in, in the economy, you need both, you need on, not only uh, carbon pricing. You have, I, I, I forgot to mention that we have a lot of subsidies on coal and oil, which are uh, reverse carbon pricing. So that's why I feel that I am a little confused with that. That said, we need a strong signal in Europe. We need to fix EUETS and that it's, because the market is working, but it 's not delivering what we all hope it 's delivering. So I fully support my, my neighbor about we need a corridor on carbon pricing and we need it shortly because we don 't need it only for investment, but we need it. Today, for operation and optimization of our existing fleets, it is a way to, to uh, optimize the, the emissions of CO2 emissions of a sector, not only the electricity sector, regarding the less emitting facilities that we do have because we have overcapacities in, in, in a lot of sectors in Europe. So, we need a strong carbon pricing for that and we we support as a company uh, the initiatives of the French government and we do hope that there will be something shortly between uh, at least France and Germany but we can hope that it could be at at a a more brighter level because it could be stronger in, in, in that way. I think that this is important to have Mm -hmm. that. And this is important, again, to have that in a systemic way, which integrates a lot of the issues that we are facing uh, in in the economy, which are the social and and environmental issues.
0: I, t- I take your point about this, the systemic approaches. What I was saying at the end the first session is that we almost need a climate change dashboard that looks at all the different variants and thinks about what the consequences, the dependencies and the counter indicators are. You need a national and an international dashboard on climate change. We're not got, we haven't got that. Do you see anywhere where the sense of a, a systemic approach is taking place that you're describing?
4: For me, the, the systemic, you, you can find it in, in the SDGs. Uh, the SDGs is a way to have a dialogue on different, uh, different issues on, 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 uh, on sustainability. Um, more, more, uh, okay, it, it, creates th- it creates
0: a structure and in, in, you know, implores people to an agreement, but it doesn't necessarily mean in reality we're, ca- we're getting a systemic approach country by country. It sets out what we need to do systemically, but we're not seeing that in place. Okay, let me move to kind of from... What, are you optimistic about um, the pricing issue changing in the next couple of years?
4: Well, I, I hope, because if I was not optimistic, I will not be doing my job. I believe that we need to be optimistic, because... A lot of people mentioned the urgency of the, uh, of the change. So if we are not optimistic, I think we have to prepare for something else. So I am optimistic, and we need it, and I think that, there, the, in a way, I will be provocative, but it's not about carbon pricing, but I think that, in a way, the fact that the U.S. are withdrawing from the uh, Paris Agreement is helpful for that, because it makes all the stakeholders responsible to support the Paris Agreement, and it's it's to us, everybody, to help to demonstrate that we can make it. So in a way, I think it makes us think of of our own responsibility. And, sure. for, and for me, this is very uh, – it can be helpful. And I believe that uh, movement like We Are Still In, which is a movement of, of, uh, of uh, states and companies, is – is a way that, uh, that can demonstrate that it can, it can, we can move forward. And for that, mm-hmm. I, I will end again with that. We need some signals because it's helpful to be able to demonstrate that it can bring something to, 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 to your, your shit. So it's... it's, it's okay, important. I
0: mean, your point is let's make a virtue out of adversity. Sometimes we can't do that all the time, but on this occasion it's absolutely clear the case that the adversi- adversity of the, the, the states pulling out has had this kind of galvanizing effect. But my point about optimism was more about actually you do need to be optimistic, but we need a bit of agitation and disruption alongside if we know the urgency of the issue that we have currently before us. Optimism is a good thing, absolutely, but in order to move us to where we need to be in the next couple of years, we do need a bit more agitation and disruption. Do you not think?
4: I I think that we need to have a lot of people on board. So that's why I feel that it's it's also important to think of the the name of the French Minister of Environment. It's turned to... Uh, ecological inclusive transition. And the three words are very important. We are transitioning. So it means that we have to have everybody on board to do this transition. It has to be ecological because we need to live in the limit of the, within the limit of the planet. And carbonism is the most visible with all what happened with climate this summer. We can have some idea of what it means for the future. But it has, it has to be inclusive. And, uh, I think that someone this morning mentioned Copenhagen. Copenhagen was a, a disruptive uh, COP because it brings on, on, on board the question of development. I think, in a way, Marrakech brings some disruption, too, bringing the question of transition in our countries.
0: Thank you. Let me open it up now. People have been very patient. So it's over to you in terms of what you make of the pricing issue both in terms of infrastructure and whether it's actually, what's your sense of the movement, whether it's moving in the right direction, but also the wider issues that are attendant in that, actually, if that's not the lever, what should be and what can be the lever to actually move us in the right direction. So, let me me see some hands up first, because I know you've already had an opportunity, but I will bring you in... Okay.
5: Thank you, Peter Wojcik, European Chemical Industry. I have a question to Hans. Um, there is a belief in uh, the time you were involved in this impact assessment on renewables but also on the, uh, the climate strategy uh, ten years ago. There was a belief you can decarbonize and you can reduce your energy consumption in Europe. And this was these 2020, 2020 targets we have for 2020 and we are still um, we are on a good track there. However. For my sector, we have done uh, research and we have looked at all the possibilities how to decarbonize the chemical industry in Europe using hydrogen as an energy carrier, using all kinds of renewables wherever possible. And the, the outcome was that we can do a lot to reduce our carbon footprint. Now comes the but. We will need 140% of the renewables predicted to be available by 2050. So we will need much more energy, actually, than we currently use for this transition, uh, or also for, for really uh, low carbon technologies. So we uh, it doesn't fit together the idea of yes, we decarbonize, and yes, we even uh, need less energy. So how uh, do, do how you, you square that circle? Okay. The, yes, the question to Hans is do you envisage revisiting the strategy or looking at a more realistic future where you will need to get the energy from somewhere? We don't know from where, but if we want to uh, have a life and if we want to produce, we need energy.
0: I'll come back to you um, uh, on that. Gentleman just there. Any hands up at the back there? no. Don't be shy. Okay. Right. Jean-Michel Glachon
5: from School of Regulation. Rachel, what is the particular political frame which helped the UK to build this uh, carbon floor price? And uh, Annie-Claude, uh, what is the particular frame
0: which made France unable to do the same like UK? Okay, let's go back. Do you, if you want to start?
6: Rachel?
3: That's a really interesting question. Uh, We had, as you probably know, the Climate Change Act in 2008, which um, stemmed from a political consensus about the need to act on climate change. So that was one part of the political frame. The uh, financial crisis changed that dynamic a bit, um, but we've also had a move from coal to gas, which started... Before that. So um, in the 1980s, we already started closing the coal mines, and even before that. So there there has been a move away from coal, which the energy industry has seen coming. So we sort of had the right trajectory, and the carbon floor price effectively secured that change, um, which probably would have been happening in any case. Uh, It does leave us with the challenge of um, then lots of gas was coming in behind, and actually, the trick that the UK has to pull off is let's move over to renewables as quickly as possible. Um, but it was to do with it being a fairly easy win. Um, we've got some much more difficult uh, issues to tackle, which won't be so straightforward politically.
0: So is your, is your point that it was an evolution and it didn't require much of a political stick?
3: I think that's the case. And um, most of the energy companies that were operating coal stations had the opportunity economically to move to other op- options um, the biggest one as people might know is Drax um, and they there was I think good dialogue with the government about um, how they could continue operating but also evolve themselves environmentally and they've started co-firing with biomass and converting to biomass which obviously has its own concerns but that, you know, there, there has been a, um, an open conversation between government and industry about how that change can be made in a non, uh, non-destructive way, from their perspective.
0: Okay.
4: Um, I, 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 um, I believe that first, um, the UK is an island, and, and uh, it Brexit. So the first thing is that uh, it's not related to the whole uh, electricity network at, as, as France is. Uh, and it has not a straight, the same view of having a more global approach of the subject. That's my feeling. I'm not discussing with the with government about that, but most the first thing is the physical situation and the physical position between UK and France in the electricity network are not the same. And if you want to have a market, you can have theoretical approaches, but you must have also a physical one. So the first thing is it's an island. Mm. And, 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 uh, and the second, that is really France is, is really at the heart of the uh, uh, electricity network and the way electricity is, is going in Europe. That makes some responsibility to have a more global approach. Maybe Anne want to build on that. Uh, to complement
1: on the context, uh, there were several discussions at, uh, at European level to discuss on uh, how having a higher price on the corridor. And uh, this, uh, this was not um, going through. So, that was uh, this idea came of uh, why not having a, a tax, a price, finally, a price at uh, some national levels. As I said, when you do it only in a country, this is not meaningful on an environmental perspective because then uh, you emit more on the, the country uh, uh, which is your neighbor. Uh, so you emit more at the coal and the uh, lignite plants uh, in Germany, for example. So you need an alliance with uh, some countries. Um, and this is very easy because uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a tax. It's simply a tax, so it's a national decision. Uh, and uh, when you, for example, you take a price, you say it should be 30 uh, euros. If uh, the EU, EU ETS is at uh, seven, then you have the the complement in uh, in tax. So uh, that's what uh, UK uh, does, and uh, that's very easy to to implement. For me, it weaknesses the 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 European. Uh, uh, system. So uh, this is uh, this is uh, not good for Europe, but it is a way, as you as you said, to agitate things, to to have things uh, coming. So uh, uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's, a, it's a way of uh, agitating uh, the idea of and saying really that uh, country, some countries and actors uh, want this to happen.
0: See almost as a situation of markets within markets, actually, and um, it does beg the question of what's the point of having the system in the first place if you could have such a margin of difference, and what the impact is in aggregate terms. Perhaps that's just too controversial a statement, but we do need to have some some level of levelling upwards um, from the member states if this is really going to be a win uh, in the short term, short to long term. Um, Hans, I want to turn to you now about that the hypothesis being generated there about, you know, we need more energy. Yeah. And was, 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 was it the wrong kind of triangulation uh, or, or uh, assumption being made in the impact assessment? No, I think
2: certainly that's a very uh, relevant uh, question, so I'll come back to that in a moment. If I perhaps can start by perhaps clarifying something, because I understood also from what Rachel said in the first round, that when I was talking about uh, when we needed uh, to reach the peak, of our CO2 emissions, and when we needed to have I was talking
0: globally. Could you uh, bring your mic up, because I don't think people... Okay,
2: is it better like this?
0: Yeah, because the acoustics are really bad at the back. So. I don't want to have it too close, because
2: then I sure. know it's also difficult anyway. Okay, so I was talking about the global emissions that we need to halve by 2050, and we were also, uh, I was also mentioning the need for uh, peaking global CO2 emissions by 2020. Of course, in Europe, we're doing much better than that, because we're already reducing our emissions, the 20% we expect to, to reach or have perhaps already reached. We've agreed 40% CO2 emissions compared to 1990 for 2030. That's part of our Paris commitment. Uh, so, of course, Europe, again, has to lead by example, and I think that's, uh, that's quite an important uh, thing. Maybe, again, before I come to the, the question, um, Lord Stern has said that climate change is the biggest market failure that the world has seen. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, of course, carbon pricing is an attempt to correct that market failure at the cheapest possible cost. And I think that's, uh, of course, something that the Commission is very mindful of. I mean, we want to have the energy transition in the cheapest possible way. And, of course, if you have an economic instrument like uh, carbon pricing, in principle, at least from a textbook economic point of view, that is the cheapest way of doing it.
0: Yet, yet the impact of climate change in this year alone, when you think of the cost in terms of insurance and the loss to the economy, is is high. So actually we can't really have a cheap um, uh, approach to this, surely.
2: Well, you can have an expensive or a less expensive uh, approach, I mean, whichever way you look at it, but of course you, you can deal with climate change in many different ways and you can reduce emissions in many different different ways. And we from the Commission side are very mindful of doing it in the cheapest possible way, which is also uh, one of the reasons why in the new renewable energy directive we are talking about support schemes and we're talking about generally having these in a technology neutral tender type of way because we do believe that is the cheapest way of doing it. It will not always be possible to do it, but that has to be, shall we say, the default Uh, starting point for all of that. Now, coming to the questions about whether we can meet our energy needs uh, for the future, well, we certainly think we can. I mean, as was mentioned also in the previous session, we have today a situation of overcapacity. There's no sign of that uh, being changed uh, very quickly. And the combination of energy efficiency with new renewable sources, perhaps uh, lower carbon fossil fuels, at least uh, as, a, as a bridging measure, we think there shouldn't really be problems in terms of meeting our energy needs. And when you say that we need 140% of the renewables, uh, I don't know by, by what date, but uh, of, of course that is clear that you are in a very energy intensive industry. We are well aware of the needs of the energy intensive industry and, of course, we do not want Europe to be without energy intensive industries in the future. That is absolutely clear. But we think that with the combination of energy efficiency and there's a lot still to be gained on energy efficiency in Europe, uh, we really should not be looking at a situation where this is going to be problematic. Uh, Last week in Brussels, there was a huge event about so-called corporate financing of renewables. Maybe uh, you were there. This is a new way for industry to get directly involved in industry, making a direct contract with a renewable energy provider, and that is becoming increasingly popular. For many reasons, I think. I was also in Sweden last week where the Renewable Energy Award in Sweden was given to Apple, and Apple had some very interesting observations about why they were extremely proud of that Mm -hmm. and why they were going much more renewable uh, than they had in the past. They said, it's not just because of climate change. We also want to contribute towards reducing climate change. It's not about security of supply or having a long-term contract with very stable prices. It's about the corporate image. The corporate image, I think, was very, very important for them because they said only if you have a positive corporate image you can attract the best and the brightest minds in Europe to work for you. And they gave the example of um, the car industry, and I'm not going to mention any names, but there have been, as you all know, uh, some issues uh, recently in the car industry. And they said there are now people uh, uh, in the car industry that are really, really struggling. And I think that is something that I'm sure also is uh, are things that, for example, the chemical industry uh, is or certainly should be thinking about in the future.
0: Mm. So the car industry suffered from very not very bright people in there. Um, however, let's there's a gentleman right at the back who had his hand up. There you go, in the blue shirt. And then I'll come to you, sir, in the in the stripy shirt. Any other? Any of the women in the audience? I know I'm, I'm not being kind of faux about this. It will be just we've got the panel, but it will be good to get some. Voices uh, from yourselves from the floor, also.
7: Okay. Right. Apologies. I'm I'm disappointingly not a woman. Um, Martin Nesbitt from the Institute for European Environmental Policy. Um, Like Rachel, um, I'm a a British European uh, and therefore uh, spending a lot of my time feeling depressed at the moment. But uh, one question for the panel would be uh, Is there one tiny bright side to the UK's departure, which is that uh, the possibility of tax instruments at a European level? suddenly becomes much more real. Um, and that, that is a, a, a possible uh, new route to a solution for the carbon pricing problem. So, cooperation on tax instruments. I
0: think uh, you should continue, but is your view that um, Britain's been blocking that in the past? Uh,
7: Britain and um, Luxembourg. Indeed. Um, and now that you have a, a former Luxembourg finance minister um, at the head of the commission, maybe this is the, uh, the opportunity uh, to, uh, to make progress on that, that agenda. Okay. Um, Just a quick comment on Hans's point about costs, um, effectiveness of of meeting targets. I absolutely agree that uh, you want to meet um, your objectives um, as cheaply and efficiently as you can. But you need to make sure that you meet the objectives. Um, And that, I think, means that you need to frame uh, the the policies with with a view to meeting the long-term decarbonization objective rather than just finding the cheapest route to... Uh, delivering the 2030 targets and i know that's something that's factored into the commission's thinking to some extent it's not always factored in sufficiently to the political debate uh, around this and um, it, it, it needs to be considered
0: thank you
6: the top. Um, hello it's uh, Sanjay from change partnership again um, I really like the question you asked about the need for agitation, so uh, let, me be, let me respond with some agitation. Um, I think there's a few things that are happening in the dynamic which haven't been mentioned by the panel yet, but they're really quite important. So next year, the IPPC is going to come out with a 1.5 degrees uh, uh, scientific report, and that's really throws all of the work that we've done so far into the water because it's clearly not adequate to meet two degrees let alone 1.5 degrees but i think there's a deeper question which is being ignored which is the climate change impacts that have been experienced in the u.s it was a 10 billion or it's a very conservative estimate for the impact in texas and if you add on florida and the um the other islands you know the numbers start to stack up indeed in europe we have People who are losing their lives because of forest fires, which are partly driven by the, 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 the climate discussion. So there's another type of carbon pricing that we haven't talked about, which is compensation for the impacts of climate change. And whether the polluters should be paying some for, should be contributing to an insurance fund which then pays out to uh, fix the climate change impacts that are happening across Europe. That's one way of pricing carbon, but that's actually one way of making this an equitable debate because a lot of the times people don't pollute, but they have to pay for the cost of the pollution. And I think that's the square that needs to be circled. And all of a sudden, then it doesn't matter whether you have an emissions trading scheme or not, an insurance fund and a contribution in the insurance fund for the amount of CO2 that you pump into the atmosphere, that's a fair thing to do. So There's com- agitation. A comp- that's
0: a good agitation. Compensation tax or a compensation premium uh, for polluters. Okay. Um, does... Um, is is the, up, the upside of Britain's exit um, uh, a pathway for doing things which others have wanted to do for quite some time? Views? Hands?
2: I think it's a a very difficult question, clearly. I mean, obviously, tax is an area which require unanimity. We know what the UK position has been so far from that perspective, maybe, but I think, you know, there might be others who have been hiding behind the UK so far uh, who might step up uh, and uh, not be particularly enthusiastic to that. I I think as long as it is uh, requiring unanimity under the treaties, it's going to be uh, quite quite difficult.
0: Okay. Lord, and or, do you have a view on the kind of compensation tax? I mean, you know, the compensation premium. Do you think it has any legs?
1: I think compensation is important, but I will shock people. I think if you compensate everything, uh, you don't change your behaviour. So.
0: Um, Even though should, the money We should will... think about it. <laughs> okay, all right. Claude, do you want to say anything on that?
4: I think that uh, compensation is more a political issue than, uh, than, uh, than other things. I think you, you could not have compensation and, and it's allowed you not to do other things. It has to be sort of something more global. And I feel that there is a, a model that I feel very interesting, which is a water model in which you are locating at the same time uh, the tax you, you, you are uh, asking people at the same time action that you can have so that it's a local, a, a local thing that make people feel that they are part of it mm-hmm. at the same time they pay but they are part of something else
0: Okay, you wanted to come back Rachel but also can I ask you mm-hmm. to think about the point that's made that actually when you think about the target going below 2 to 1.5 and the fact that actually all the systems we have in place need to be thoroughly changed what, you know, in what way?
3: Look, I personally think we need to get to net zero in the whole world in 2050. I, I'm not quite sure. From from the recent scenarios, scientific scenarios I've seen, um, that appears to be the only way that we're going to avoid two-degree temperature rise. Um, and, of course, it depends on the pathway to getting there. But we need to basically be a, a, a zero-carbon society as a, as a whole, which is... Probably not even possible, but that ought to be the goal we're working towards. So that means systemic change in absolutely every sector, including the really difficult ones like agriculture. Um, and we haven't begun to address that. And it, the, you know, the political difficulties just with decarbonising the power sector, which is kind of the easy one. Um, there needs to be, I think um, you were talking about a climate change dashboard. Yes. I love that idea. Oh, um, good. And we you should heard it here. do it. We're copyrighting uh, it. Yeah. But getting from you know it was hard enough to get the Paris agreement where we they just agreed a number really um and now turning that into some real holistic proposals which get every sector down to zero it's got to happen I heard um Christiana Figueres speak recently and she talked about optimism and I do understand the point about optimism because what else can you do you, you, you need some you need to get the forces rallied a bit but the only and she said Um, I never thought we'd manage the Paris Agreement um, but we did because we were optimistic we we got that agreement so we have to stay optimistic and we'll get the next agreement which will begin to ratchet us down to where we need to get to Um, and I I wanted to respond to Sanjeev's idea, because I think it's a lovely idea, um, and also politically completely unfeasible, but what's good about suggesting ideas like that is that it makes people think. consider the issues, mm. and maybe we should be just throwing in as many of these really controversial proposals as possible um, to make people kind of look at what the impacts are in a different way. So there are, there are good reasons for agitating and coming Indeed. up with um, disruptive proposals.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Please, I mean, um, I didn't intend to say that we shouldn't be optimistic, but I just think that we need it underpinned by or it to be um, the underpinning force for agitation and disruption potentially. And Christina, in her own right, is agitating all over the world with her comment currently about what needs to change and the fact that actually we need to rethink our estimations and what the gap currently is uh, between, you know, what we're saying we're doing and what we must do uh, and what the timescales are. I'm going to end with the last question from the lady here at the front. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Nadia Kovalchikova, academic. Um, I have a question regarding energy security in a comparative perspective of the EU and the Se- US. Slowly,
0: if you could just say that again, quite slowly. Your question is?
3: on Energy security in a comparative perspective between the EU and US. So the role of energy and energy security, do you consider, has it been rising in the last 15 years or so in the EU, the role of energy in the strategic thinking of the EU and US? And if it has been rising, why? Thank you.
0: And your question is, is to the panel as a, as a...
3: All of them, thank you.
0: Do you want to start, Rachel? And then, you know, some concluding remarks about the whole pricing issue would be helpful.
3: <clears throat> yes, <laughs> I think it has. Um, I don't know very much about the internal U.S. debate. But geopolitics, which is probably an overused term are getting more and more heated and strained, and so inevitably thoughts turn to energy security Mm. and how are we going to make sure we keep the lights on and keep them on without being dependent on, you know, to take a a hackneyed example, Russian gas supplies. Um, So certainly in the UK, which obviously, as someone said, is an island and therefore more exposed in terms of energy security, that's top of the list, and it's been going up the list, but I'm I'm sure that's the case in the EU as well. Um, Concluding remarks on pricing, to say what I've probably said, which is, let's keep having carbon pricing. Let's make it more meaningful and more interactive with what else is going on in the, in the economy.
0: Okay, Claude, cool. can I come to you about the, the security, the energy security issue? Because clearly, I mean, I can see it from a, a citizen perspective in terms of the geopolitics, you say overly used, but when we think about the routes and access to... Uh, energy, supplies across Europe and elsewhere? There's a real concern about what's happening politically versus security.
4: I I think uh, a company is not in charge of security of supply. It's in charge of selling energy to its customers, and it's part of a global policy. And One of the issues is, is that a European topic or is that a French topic or um, an Italian topic? So this is what is... Today, in, this, in a dialogue in Europe, and I think uh, Hans will be more comfortable than me to answer that. But this is, we, we have to supply our customers and be part of the project of the country in which we are operating.
0: Okay. Do you want to make a comment on energy security at all? Anne? No? All right. Any final comments from you in terms of the pricing issue?
1: Final comment, just on uh, pricing. Uh, If we wait too much, the cost is going to be more expensive. That's what uh, all the economists show. So we need uh, to agitate, as you said. (laughs) Okay.
0: Finally, Hans. Uh,
2: So, in fact, it was good this question came at the end because it gives me an opportunity to talk about the energy union, which is, of course, the guiding light for us in the Commission these days, which has five guiding principles, one of which is energy security, solidarity, and trust, as you know. I think the interesting thing here, we're looking at decarbonisation and energy security. They are not in any way opposed to each other. I mean, we can decarbonize and at the same time increase our energy security perfectly well. Uh, energy efficiency is clearly a way to do it. Renewables, most of which are domestically produced – very clear way of producing or increasing uh, energy security. So it's true that for some member states energy security is a higher priority than climate change. Uh, I think that's a fact and we have to deal with that but it's not necessarily a problem because I think if we introduce intelligent measures that are designed to deal with both challenges related to energy security and to uh, climate change, uh, we are able to kill several birds with one uh, stone. And talking about energy union, I think the – and that's also a reply to the the gentleman at the back who asked about how can we make sure we meet our goals. Mm. I think that's where the whole issue of governance comes in, and I don't think you've talked much about that, but for the commission, this is absolutely critical. How can we ensure that this whole energy union project is governed in such a way that we actually get to where we need to get to uh, at the lowest possible price, as we've also discussed, uh, and the energy governance proposal, which is there to secure that, is making its way through the system together with the renewables directive, the energy efficiency directives, and so on and so forth. Concluding remarks on the energy pricing, I think I agree, actually, very much with what Rachel just said. I mean, we need energy uh, pricing, we need uh, EU ETS, we need... Uh, effort-sharing and non-ETS and all the rest of it. But it's probably not going to be enough. We will also need uh, regulatory measures at EU level in order also to make sure that every member state in the EU contributes in a positive way to something which eventually will be positive for everybody.
0: Indeed, and it's good to end on that positive note. Yet let's hope that the discussions that are currently in place amongst some of the political leaders and others, um, conclude in a clement way and to, to some agreement. I'm not sure it will raise the bar in pricing because uh, it will ever be a political issue. I'm sure, but that's it from us, colleagues. I hope you found this day so far, the three sessions, um, useful, helpful, interesting, enabled you to make the you know connections between the issues, and hope that we've d- debated the right terms um, and hopefully let's think about especially in this session I think we've understood what needs to change most dramatically if we're going to actually do the do and get to the targets that we set out notwithstanding the fact that actually all our targets are going to change in the next year given the new forecast of the temperature that we need to meet by 2050. Um, Thank you and thank you to our panel in the usual way thank you very much. And, you know, do let us, do give us feedback. Uh, we always look forward to it. I think the two issues of governance and digital, um, um obviously need attention and we will t- t- turn to those in the coming year also in, through our, through our work uh, on this particular agenda. Thank you very much and have a good day.